Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city, and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to one another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Nick. Well, we do. We head into the upper room with Jesus and his disciples into this most intimate moment we really get to enter into. It was a very intimate moment between Jesus and his disciples, and we have the privilege of getting to enter into that room today. If you remember last week, we talked about a helpful metaphor as we come into the end of Jesus' life. This idea of a swirling, epic, cosmic storm for the events of the final days of Jesus' life. Remember, we talked about that last week as a helpful metaphor for us to think through this. The heightening tension that's happening now. The cast of characters that will betray him, arrest him, and ultimately crucify him. It looks much like this swirling 200-mile-per-hour, out-of-control storm with winds. Maybe sometimes your life feels like that, that storm out of control, swirling winds, like it feels like it's out of your reach and grasp, and you're just losing control on this thing. But even as there are eyes of the storm, as we see here in this picture, that can sometimes be 40 miles wide, where it's calm and peaceful, in the middle of this storm in Jesus' life, we see him in the eye of the storm, responding, confident, committed, and caring. And today totally in control, totally, absolutely in control of the situation. That's what we're going to see today. You know, there are those in history who try to make the argument, try to attempt to say that uh, the cross was actually never Jesus' original plan. 
it was sort of like this uh, thing that just sort of got out of control, just like this storm. It wasn't his original plan. There's this infamous quote from the 20th century by this theologian, Albert Schweitzer. His metaphor isn't the storm, but the metaphor you're going to hear is of this giant turning wheel. Here's what he said. He said, Jesus, in the knowing knowledge that he is the coming Son of Man, he lays hold of the wheel, think of this giant wheel of the world, to set it moving on that last revolution, which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. It refuses to turn, and he throws himself upon it, then it does turn and crushes him. Instead of bringing in the eschatological, that's end times, conditions, he's destroyed them. The wheel rolls onward, the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man who is strong enough to think of himself as a spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. That's his victory and his reign. Don't you see it? Jesus was just a, he was just a misunderstood, failed spiritual man. He, he was trying to bend history to his purpose, and, and he just couldn't do it. It just got out of control. You know, maybe have some pity for him. And like a hurricane, it destroyed him like a runaway wheel. It mangled him, and his body's still hanging there on that wheel. That's his reign. Or as a famous atheist, Richard Dawkins, in our day, said in response to the question of why he wore a T-shirt that said, Atheists for Jesus. Here's what he said. The point I wanted to make was that Jesus was a good man and that a man of his time, he had to be religious because everybody was. But I suspect that if he had, been, if he, he had, had the knowledge we have today, he probably would have been an atheist and he probably would have been a good man. That was a really recent quote. Don't you see? Jesus was just, he was just an ignorant man of his day who believed these silly things. Pity poor Jesus. If he was in our day, he would know better like we do. <laughs> or how about you, you think? When doubts creep in, was this really the, God's plan for my life? I mean, is this really the way he wanted it to go? Or, or we think about history. Was this really God's plan? I mean, this was his grand plan? This, this, the Savior that would come and then die? A man on a cross? Was it out of control? No, you and I need to see this morning. Here's what we're going to see. Jesus Christ was on a mission. He knew what he was doing. He wasn't deluded. He wasn't confused. He wasn't ignorant in the upper room discourse. He is a man of conviction, certainty, and sovereignty, like a king in total control. That's what we're going to see today. And as he orchestrates the arcs of history, you think of a giant arc bending from one point to another. He orchestrates them. It's really, you've heard it before, history is really his story. He's telling it. He's in total control. This morning, Jesus takes the historical celebration of Passover and, it, and forms an arc from that first Passover to the Passover we're going to see today. And then he takes it to the, uh, uh, to the future feast we're going to look at in the new heaven and the earth. The arc from the past to the Passover he's celebrating to ours we're going to celebrate to the future. That's what we're looking at today. So grab your outline as we're going to see, look at this sovereign story of what Jesus does in history. The first thing we're looking at is this. Jesus orchestrates the planning of this Passover. This one he has with his disciples to ensure that they get the significance of the meal and the timing of his death. He's orchestrating this. He's doing this. He's planning this. Passover, if you remember, it was a historical meal in the life of God's people, the Jews. 
It was a festival that God's people had been celebrating since their redemption. Do you remember the Exodus story? Out of slavery in Egypt where they'd spent 400 years. That was probably a time where they thought, is this really God's story for us? This is God's plan. 400 years. There were generations that came and went that never got to see anything. All they knew was slavery. Think about that. Plague after plague was sent on Pharaoh in that story in the Egyptians, and yet he refused to set God's people free. And the final plague, if you remember from Exodus 12, God would send the angel of death, an angel of justice, really, you might call him, to every house to kill the firstborn child. God was very serious about letting his people go free. Except on the households that observed the Passover the killing of a lamb, and the smearing of blood on the doorpost. We're going to talk a lot about blood today. It's just that kind of day. It's Passover we're talking about. They smeared the blood of the lamb over their doorpost. Well, what would have happened to a Jewish household that didn't put the blood over their doorposts? You ever thought about that? We always think of the context of Egyptians. Same thing for the Jews, though. Justice would have come. Death. They were showing faith in God's promise to pass over their house, to pass over them because of the blood. Exodus 12, 13 says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over. That's why we call it Passover. The angel will pass over. No plague will befall, befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. They needed faith. Faith in the sign of the Passover. They had to believe in that. The blood was needed. To put it bluntly, as one commentator said, he said it was a dead child or a dead lamb substituted in his place. So here we are now. It's Thursday, the day they are celebrating to begin the preparation to celebrate the Passover. Now back to Jesus and his disciples. It's a Thursday, and they are to sacrifice the lamb on that day in the temple to get ready to roast for the Passover meal, which would begin on Friday, which was technically sunset on Thursday for them, after 6 p.m. So we're in that evening now in Jesus' life. This moment in God's people, people's history, and the ongoing celebration was very significant to them. I mean, it was, it was everything to them. As we see in our passage, Jesus, Jesus doesn't just passively let this Passover happen, does he? He's not just passively hands-off. He's orchestrating this Passover. Much like, if you remember, when he orchestrated the triumphal entry, remember? Go out, find a, find a, a way for me to go. You know, I'll ride in, go, disciples, you'll find it. You see in the text, either he had already, one or two options. He either already made secret plans with someone who would send a man out with a water jar, which would have been really weird to see. It would have been like a man carrying a purse today. Uh, if you still went out and saw a man carrying a water jar at that time, maybe that's not, not strange today even, but uh, a man wearing, carrying a water jar would be, uh, it would be odd. So either Jesus planned it out and orchestrated this plan, preparing uh, for anticipation of that night, or maybe it was divine miracle. And either way, Jesus is controlling the environment. Either way, he's controlling it. You know the anticipation you have before a great uh, dinner party? great feast, or you, you've planned a surprise party and the guests are about to walk in, everything, hide, hide, here they come. That anticipation, surprise, great anticipation. Or the night before, a test or a, a job interview, that, that, that anticipation. 
the anticipation for this meal it was measureless. And that's how important this was. They were ready. This was the most important meal that we're looking at today that's ever, let me say that again, ever happened in all of history. This is the most important feast that's ever happened in all of history. And I think by a long shot, by a long shot, Jesus knew it, that, and he was not going to just let it slide by. He was about to show them that he would be their Passover lamb. That's what he's about to show them. And that it had been planned before history. Is this an accident? Take a look at this passage, Revelation. The lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Is that an accident? Is that an out-of-control wheel of history? Is that an ignorant man that just didn't know better and should have been an atheist? No. The lamb that was slain from the creation of the world before history began. Let that sink in. Jesus' death was planned for you from eternity past. That's what we see. That's what Jesus knew. He knew. Eternity past. And this night, this Passover night, he was going to connect his death with their hope of deliverance, an ark of connection. He was going to connect his death with their hope of deliverance. Exodus was always called a night of watching, being anticipating God's deliverance, not just in the Exodus time, but it was an ongoing night of deliverance that maybe the Messiah would arrive. They, would, they thought that. It was always an ongoing night of anticipation for deliverance. So he's going to connect the ark from the first Passover to his death. And so he orchestrates the room to be, to be available, to be ready, to be all set up to show the, how significant this meal is. Not only that, he had a timing for his death too. The timing of his death too, was important. This meal had to happen before he dies, and so he keeps the room secret from where it's going to be for the disciples because who's in the inner circle? Judas. He keeps it secret because this has to happen before Judas betrays him. And we know it happens that same night, doesn't it? This had to happen. Jesus has confidence here. And as we see that, let it remind you and I today of this thing. Let it inspire us that life is not a cosmic storm. Your life is not out of control. Even when it looks like 200 mile an hour swirling winds, which comes pretty often, doesn't it? It is in his hand. He's orchestrating this story. He's orchestrating your life too. Believe that. Hold on to that. But even as they get into the room... He's orchestrating the events there as well that we're going to see. Let's look together. Now into the room with them. Jesus orchestrates the announcement of his betrayal even in this room to point that his death was preordained. The preordination of his death and the responsibility of Judas. Both. Both. Pick it up with me in verse uh, 17. When it was evening, that's after 6 p.m., he came with the 12, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the 12, one who's dipping bread into the dish with me. 
Well, that's a lot of help, Jesus. We're all dipping the bread. <laughs> it's one of the 12 dipping bread in, into the dish with me. Like I said, it was after 6 p.m., and the disciples had begun the, the, the liturgy of the Passover meal. The liturgy just means the work of the people. It's something they do when you gather and worship. We have our own here. Everybody has, every church has a liturgy, they, the way they do things when they gather. Well, they had a liturgy with Passover, uh, this meal. It was a meal that had uh, unleavened bread, bitter herbs, uh, stewed fruit was another, ooh, yummy, stewed fruit uh, was another thing, and then roasted lamb. Roasted lamb was the, the main course. And it was a very intimate, very intimate. They used to eat at low tables, almost laying on a show, uh, elbow towards the table as they would feast and eat together. And it was done with family uh, in the, at this time. But here he's doing it, no, no family, disciples. He's doing it with his disciples. So Jesus would have been leading the group. Uh, he even, we know from the Gospel of John, controlled the seating we can gather from John, we think that Jesus was probably in the middle, and Judas would have been sitting on, on his left, and John on his right, the beloved disciple. And at this point, he would have just finished retelling to them, as part of that liturgy, retelling the story of the f- being freed in, uh, in Exodus, freed from Egypt. And they would have just finished sharing and passing around and drinking the first of four cups of wine. That's important. We're going to come back to that. They just would have finished sharing the first of four cups of wine, and they would have sung together Psalms 113 through 115, which recount a praise for the Lord delivering them from bondage in Egypt. They would have gone on and drank the second of four cups of wine. When Jesus broke the bread, and he handed it, and they dipped it into the bitter herbs and would dip it in and, and, and dip it into the, the, the stewed fruit as well. And it was at that moment that John records, he began to be troubled in his spirit. Almost as if this, this is the beginning of his passion. He begins to be troubled in his spirit. And if Jesus knows of his death, he also knows, he has to know he'll be, betrayed to, he'll be betrayed as well by one in the room, and he shatters the room in this moment. He shatters the festive moment that was taking place. One of you will betray me. I mean, imagine first the broken heart of Jesus, the absolute broken heart. He was a real human. He didn't want to be, he there was no pleasure in betrayal for him. A close friend is going to betray him. One of the inner circle now, in the, in the most intimate moment even, this Passover meal, probably thinking of this psalm in his mind. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. You think this was planned for all history? How do you, how do you orchestrate that? Johnny, you think he, I think it's in Johnny even says, the one who will lift his heel against me. He quotes these exact words. And imagine the disciples' grief as well. Their instant sorrow. What? One of the 12? We've been living together for three years. How is this possible? How could we not have known? And their instant sorrow and their instant self-preservation, self-protection. Is it I? Is it I? Wait, wait, is it me? Is it me? Jesus, tell me first. Tell me first. Is it me? Just get that off the table. Right? Let me know. Is it I? Jesus' words should they should cause us to search our own souls. When he says those words, one of you will betray me, 
Because the reality is every time we sin, we betray Jesus. Every time we sin, as if, it's, as if we're saying to God, I'm smarter than you. I, I, I know better than you. This is good for me. Every time. And so Jesus' words should also cause us to search our own souls today. Such as we come to this table. John records in Jesus' hands one more piece of bread to Judas and kind of outing him as the one, the one who I hand this piece to. And Judas flees. But Mark records for us one of the most significant theological statements that Jesus ever uttered. Here it is, verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he'd not been born. This this divine Son of Man, this figure from Daniel, it was written that this would happen to him. Uh, Think of Isaiah's suffering servant as well. Isaiah 53, this suffering servant would come about. The death of Jesus was preordained and determined. Jesus says, this is written down by God. It must happen. Acts records as well, and there's other places in the Bible, this Jesus delivered up, killed, according to the definite plan, plan that we said, sacrifice from before creation and foreknowledge of God. And yet Peter can say, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God planned this. Wasn't, this wasn't a, a revolution that got away from Jesus. It was the arc of God's story. The Passover to Jesus, the Passover lamb. And yet, if you look in this, even in this moment, what do we see in Jesus? He even loves Judas, his betrayer. It's like he offers Judas one more chance to repent. Woe, he says to the one. It's like one more chance. Even in that moment of betrayal, the loving Jesus is woe to the one. If you go through with this, Judas, the arc of your story, actually it'd be better if you weren't born, Judas. Repent, Judas, he's saying. Repent, turn from your sin, Judas. And I think if he had, Jesus would have forgiven him like us and yet would have died somehow by some other hand. It's the same for us. Repent. He's giving him one more time. Repent. Turn from your sin. Don't do this. Woe to the man who does. But what we see is that even though God had ordained all of this, and, and I would say Judas' betrayal, God does not sin himself, he's not responsible, and he still says, Judas, you're responsible for your actions. Both are true. The Bible teaches this from beginning to end. God ordains all things, everything that comes to pass, and yet we're still morally responsible agents. We have to hold those two in tension because the Bible teaches them both. Judas was still responsible for his actions, yet God ordains all things. Think of Joseph in Genesis 50. You might know that story. Joseph is sold off into slavery. It's horrific. It looks like a cosmic hurricane. It's out of control. 
But he comes to the end of his life and he says to his brothers, you, you meant it for evil. God meant it, that it, those evil acts, selling him into slavery, wanting him dead. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Both end. It's the very thing Jesus is teaching us here. It is written down. It must happen. And yet, woe to the man who does it. I've ordained this, but repent. But in such a loving way, he does it. If Judas would repent, or if he would have stayed to see what Jesus did next, what would have happened? Here it is. Jesus takes the Passover. He rewrites the script by pointing to himself and our future. If God ordains all things, you know what that means for your life? When it is a cosmic storm, he can actually still use it. When you go through trials and you're hurting, he can actually be as close to you as ever. We just think the storm happens and God, there's no way God's even involved in this in any way. He ordains all things and yet he uses them in our life. He, can be, he is close to you when it does feel like a storm. Well, Jesus goes off script. Take a look. He goes off script. There's this absolute shock probably when Jesus goes off script. This was a very planned thing they did, this Passover feast. The words were the word of God for the most part and responses between the order of the feast and the people. They would have been absolutely shocked. He's, he's transforming what they know. And he's turning the last meal he would eat. This is his last meal before he passes away to the first of many meals his followers would eat. These verses tell us so much about the table we're going to come to today. So let's unpack them for our final point today. What do we see in these verses, this feast? What did it mean for them? What does it mean for us? How does he connect it to our future? That's what we're going to talk about right now. First, it's this, a new covenant. A new covenant. When Jesus says, this is, this is my body. This is my blood. When he says the words, a new covenant, and at the end of our passage, I promise I won't drink wine again until we are in the kingdom of God together. That's all language of new covenant, of promises, of a binding hope for his disciples. He's making a new covenant with them and with you. It comes from Jeremiah 31. Here's the verse you see. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's what he was doing. He was making a new covenant with them. And in this moment, he's making, he's making an oath to them, a promise to them, a new covenant that his blood will secure. His blood's going to finalize it. Biblical times, they would cut an animal in half. Right down the middle. They cut an animal in half, and they placed the pieces there. And the people who were going to make a covenant would walk between the severed animal. I know, they did things a little differently than we do them. And they would walk through the severed animal, and they would together speak the covenant. If I don't keep my end, it was like saying, do this to me. 
That's kind of what it was when they walked that severed animal. If I don't keep my end of this, you, I, you can do this to me. It's kind of what they're saying. Or it's gory, I know, but here's our Exodus passage. I said blood. Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. He threw it on the people. And he said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Well, at least you know they were serious about their promises, right? This is more than a little pinky swear. They were serious about their promises. You know that. Cut me in half, spill my blood. That's what they're saying in these promises. It's like I was saying, I don't keep my promise. Chop me in two, spill my blood. And now there's a new covenant that comes through his body and blood. That's why this is so significant. Through his body and blood. Did you notice? At this feast, there's no mention of the lamb. There's no mention of of the lamb. Yes, they went and killed it, the passage says, which means they would have roasted it, which means they would have brought it into the room, but the gospels don't mention the lamb. The Passover is all about a, a lamb. It's not a Passover without a lamb. It doesn't make any sense. But there was my body, my Blood, as one commentator put it, Jesus is the main course. That's why it's not there. Jesus is the main course of this feast. It's the reason at the beginning of his ministry, John the Baptist said to him when he saw Jesus coming, Behold the Lamb of God. There he is who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Lamb. That's why it's not talked about. God has been orchestrating the arc of history for this moment at that table, at that time, with those people in the room. My body, he said, will take your beating. My blood will be poured out, as Isaiah says. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and his life was poured out. Jesus had already taken the first two cups of wine in the Passover at this moment. Two out of how many did I say? Good, you're with me. All right. Two out of four. Two out of four. Here's a little graphic image to help us uh, uh, understand this. There were four cups at the Passover, and they relate to four promises that come from Genesis, or Exodus 6, uh, verse 6 and 7. The first one that he'd already drank was, I'll bring you out from the yoke of the Egyptians. I'll bring you out from the yoke. The second one was, I'll rescue you from slavery. The third one... I'll save you. I'll redeem you was the, pr the promise. And it's at this point in the feast that Jesus lifts the third cup. The cup of redemption. The cup of saving. This isn't chance. He's orchestrating this meal. The redemption cup. That's the one he blessed. That's the one he shared at this moment. That's the one they drank. His blood in our place purchased our redemption. That's why he even waited to the exact cup to do, go it, do it. The third one. And that redemption we're going to see is based on substitutionary love. Any love in your life that you've experienced, any love that's ever made a real difference for you, any love that's 
uh, transformed you is a substitution kind of love where you put yourself in the place of somebody else or somebody else puts themselves uh, in your place for you. All, and all great stories. I want you to think about this as you watch some movies this week or TV shows. I want this idea, substitutionary love, somebody else in somebody's place. It shows up in all of stories through all of history because it's true. It's everywhere. I was just watching this last week, The Jungle Book. Of all movies with my kids, the old one now, uh, not the, the recent one, the old one now. And, and there's this scene that you see a picture coming up where Baloo the bear, sorry, it's kind of dark, but I think you get it. Baloo's down here, the bear, uh, and Mowgli, were, they were the best of friends. They had lived life together, and on that rainy day, Baloo saves Mowgli. If you remember the scene from the, the classic movie, from Shere Khan, the dangerous tiger's coming to kill this little boy, and Baloo steps in and saves Mowgli, but dies in the process. And here's the, the, the scene. I'm watching it there with my kids, and Mowgli's grieving and crying, and my kids are like, <laughs> they're just eyes wide open. He's, he's dead. And we're watching it, and I said, I, I said to them, I said, see, it's like Jesus. He died instead of Mowgli. He died instead of Mowgli. I was thinking I'm all smart, and all of a sudden the... the, the, the the dialogue comes in. Bagheera comes over to Mowgli, and Mowgli asks uh, Bagheera, what's wrong with Baloo? What's wrong? And Bagheera says, oh, you have to be brave, Mowgli, like Baloo was, meaning he's dead. And he says, now, now, I know, I know he said to the little boy how it feels, but you must remember Mowgli. And he goes on to say these words, greater love hath no one than he lay down his life his friends. And he goes on to say, his sacrifice will be engraved on our hearts. Not a lot of subtlety for Walt Disney there, but that he, I think that's what he was pointing to with Baloo. Jesus' love was substitutionary. It's so true and powerful, it shows up in all our stories. Even a classic cartoon like Jungle Book, he got what we deserve for our sin. That's substitution. He got what you deserve for your sin. That's substitution. He jumps in place of your death. It shows up in all our movies. In our place condemned he stood. We sing the song, don't we? In our place condemned he stood. But that substitutionary love, it must be taken by faith. It's our next one. Taken by faith. Did you catch it? Jesus says there, take it. Take it. Take the bread and not only take it, eat it in. Eat it in your mouth. Chew it up. Swallow it. Digest it. He says, take and eat it. Take, take the wine. Drink it down. Put it in your mouth. Feel it going down your throat. Drink it in. Take it. Faith must actively take in Christ's work. It, it, it's got to be for you. It can't be your friend's faith. It can't be your church's faith. You have to take it in, as Jesus said to his disciples. Make it your own. If you think about it, you can have the most delicious feast. Think of your favorite restaurant, all-you-can-eat buffet, place you love to go. You can have the most delicious feast in front of you, and unless you take it in by mouth and chew it and digest it, no nourishment, right? Just sit there in front of you and go to waste. 
You have to take what Jesus did for you on the cross as your own. And those who have then, when we come to this table here, we rehearse again that covenant by faith again. You're not saved again for another time. Once you're saved, you're saved. But we exercise that faith again. We go, yes, he is the lamb. He did die. He did substitute my place. I take it in again by faith, and I believe it. We rehearse that, and we take these elements down and in. Have you taken him in by faith? That's the question. Have you taken him in by faith? Everybody in this room, have you taken him in by faith yet? Jesus says, take, eat, take, drink. Because when we do, when we do, you get to become part of this new family. And this meal becomes for you to take again today. He's forming a new family is what he's doing in this room. He's forming a new family. My two brothers are getting ready to visit this week, uh, visit me this next week. It's our middle brother's 40th birthday. We've decided we're going to just do uh, something for each of us on our, get, be together at least on our 40th birthday. We don't live near each other anymore. And the last time we were all uh, together was my, my 40th birthday a couple years back. And I'm so looking forward to this week. Well, why? They're family. We were raised together. We've been through lots together. And so there's a bond of closeness that comes with family. You probably know that. But we're a family too. Well, I was talking to one of our elders this last week, and he, we were just talking about our church and talking about the community and that he loves the people. And he said, I can't imagine, I can't imagine not meeting with them, being around them on a Sunday. He said, I can't imagine. We've been through a lot together. We're a family that's what he told me. I thought, oh, it's, I was just so glad to hear that. It's amazing. We've been through a lot. I can't imagine not being with them. That's family. That's what Jesus is doing in this room. The Passover was a family meal. But did you notice? Jesus pulled these guys away from their families. They weren't with their families in that moment because he was creating a new family. That's what we are, a new family. Here's what D.A. Carson said. What binds us together? What binds Christians together is not a common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they've been saved by Jesus Christ. That's why. They're a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. We are a family. We're a strange one. Every church is. You look around me, what, what other than something this magnificent would pull this group of people together? Just think about it. Not, what else would pull us together? What could we do to get this group of people together in a room again? Outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe give away a million bucks, but that's different. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. We're a family. It's the reason we say stuff together in church. It's the reason why we, David gets up here and he goes, I'm going to say something, you're going to respond back to me. We do it together to remind us we're a family. It's the reason we sing stuff together out loud. It's the reason we say stuff at the same time. I know it feels a little weird. You're like, why do we have to say something together at the same time? We're a family. And that's why we do it, because it reminds us of that. And the same is communion. We come together. It's not just me and Jesus. It's we and Jesus. It always has been. 
The idea of a Christian disconnected from a local church doesn't exist in the entire Bible. The idea of a Christian disconnected from a local church, it's not even a concept that would have been, it doesn't make sense in the Bible. It's not there. Families spend time together. I'm glad you're here today. That's why we're here. This is our family time. And what does he finally show us as we come as a family to this table? It's the finest thing, final thing. Did you notice Jesus never gets to the, how many cups was it? He never gets to the fourth cup. There was four at every Passover meal. He never gets to it. Why? He's waiting for that one when we're back together. Here's the final point. With an ark to the future feast. That's why. He pointed the ark from the Passover to his death, and now he says to them, as he connects it to the future feast, I won't, I will not drink it again until we're back together. It's a promise. It's a promise. He connects the ark of his death and this meal we take today to our reuniting with him someday. He connects it to our reuniting with him someday in eternity. Sir Nicholas went in. He kept a huge secret for about 50 years. 50 years he kept this secret. His name was Sir Nicholas Winton. Kept it secret for 50 years. In 1938, Winton single-handedly began to rescue uh, Jewish children from the Holocaust on the eve of World War II. It's an incredible story. You may have heard it before. He successfully brought 669 Jewish children from Czechoslovakia to England. And he helped them find new families in England. Most of the the, uh, children's parents, they went on to die in concentration camps. 669 kids. They estimate that there's probably 6,000 people today uh, that were impacted because of those children he saved, that they wouldn't even be here today. Winton never mentioned the children to anyone after the war. And it was kind of forgotten in history. Until Greta, his wife, found a notebook in their attic 50 years later. 50 years later, with some children's pictures and their names listed in this book. His wife gave the book to a journalist, and they were able to track down one of the girls, Nicholas Winton. He risked for those children. I mean, if there's never a picture of substitutionary love, he risked in saving them. And then that initiating act that he did connected that ark that reunited them 50 years later. Don't you see what this table is? Do you see it? What Jesus has done? Substituted himself for you. And then says, we'll be together again. We will be reunited. This meal is just a foretaste of what is coming. The ark is connected from the Passover to his death, and he says, I'll drink it again when we're together, a reun- re- being reunited. Jesus says, I am the Passover lamb. My covenant in blood will redeem you. Here, eat a meal to remember that. Eat a meal again to taste that again. 
to know that the arc of history went from there to my death, and it will reunite us someday, and we'll surround him, and then they'll say again, does anyone owe their life to this man? And what will happen? All of us will stand. All of us. As our servers begin to prepare, take a moment. Take just a moment between you and the Lord. And think about that being reunited someday. Think again freshly what this table means for us as they prepare. Just take a couple moments in silent prayer to prepare your hearts.